Take your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We'll be taking a break from our study in Romans this morning to be able to surround our hearts with um, thoughts of the incarnation. When you come up to an opportunity like this as a preacher and you, you get to preach a Christmas message, there's just no end to where you could start. You could almost get to the incarnation from any verse or passage in the Old Testament. You could almost describe it from any passage in the New. And we're going to be dialing in this morning here in, in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 1, in one of the instances in which we find the angels coming to visit. They had four different um, uh, announcements that we'll see in a few minutes, but we're going to look specifically at the angels' announcement to Mary. Let me read this for us, beginning in verse 26, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement. It kept pondering what kind of salutation was this. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. One of the fundamental tenets of what has been come to be called liberal theology is the suspicion of anything miraculous in the Bible. It's to look at miraculous things and events and occurrences in the scriptures and to find problems with them. Find anything that describes a supernatural event and a liberal thinker will most often provide what they believe to be a plausible explanation of that event in terms of naturalistic events, naturalistic explanations or revisionistic editing of the text. Let me explain 
for example, you see Moses uh, parting the Red Sea. And liberal theologians would say, no, no, Moses parted the Reed Sea. It wasn't that big a deal. No, the question is, how did all the Egyptians drown in the Reed Sea? But that's for another time. They say Jesus didn't walk on the water. Obviously, it was a cold night and he walked on ice. Trying to explain it naturalistically. Other times, though, when it comes to situations like we're looking at here in the virgin birth, liberals tell us that this is a myth that was invented after the fact. In fact, they say this was a myth invented to cover up Mary's immorality. The Jesus Seminar is a, it's a group of liberal biblical scholars. It's hard to even say biblical scholars. Liberal biblical scholars who, who vote on the words of Jesus. Maybe you've heard of the Jesus Seminar. They typically meet in Phoenix and they, they read passages and they have white marbles and red marbles and they vote over whether that's really God's word or not. And that way they're, they're rewriting the, the, their version of the Bible similar to Thomas Jefferson who cut out all the miraculous as well. Well, this Jesus Seminar takes this view. These theologians reject the biblical account of Jesus' miraculous conception that we just read about. Calling this idea of Jesus' virgin birth a later creation, a later invention to cover up something. Mary, they conclude, must have had sexual relations with either Joseph or another man. And in order to cover up that immorality, this virgin birth myth was propagated. Do you think the New Testament writers engaged in myth-making and revising history? Did they invent this story of the virgin birth? Did they deliberately make Jesus larger than life? Is he really a figment of exaggeration? Well, as we come to this text this morning we're immediately faced with this and a slew of other questions. Really the most important question of the Christmas season we just sang, what child is this? It's remarkable to me year in and year out to hear people who have no idea who Jesus is, no expression of faith in Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, singing these songs and hearing them sing inexplicable, divine, miraculous theological insights without any pause of what they're singing. Is all this stuff about Jesus, all this surrounding factual quote-unquote mythology that the liberals tell us, tell us is uh, not true, is it true or is it mythology? Is it sentimentalism or is it something more? Well, much should be made and much could be made about the facts that attended the birth of Christ. Just to read the early chapters of Matthew and Luke is to really challenge your faith and to say, do I, do I believe this? Will I believe this? Because you're going to have to suspend your scientific conclusions. You're going to have to suspend your, your disbelief in the supernatural if you're going to believe the Christmas story. What's most miraculous and amazing to me, though, are the circumstances un, under which the the Son of God, God in flesh, the Trinity's plan, decided to come and visit the world. 
had I been on the, 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 the board of deciding about the incarnation, had I been in heaven and sitting at the table, I probably would have figured out a more dramatic way to come into the world where everyone would have seen it. But these miraculous events happen with common people. Very humble means. God sent angels to testify to the identity of his son by making supernatural announcements to three specific people and one group of people. The angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah uh, to announce the identity of his son, John the Baptist. That he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the, the passage that precedes the one we're looking at here in Luke 1, specifically verses 11 to 17. The angelic announcement about the newborn Messiah came to a group of shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, where these shepherds are out in the field, common, lower class people who an angel came and announced the birth of the Messiah. An angel came to a, in a dream to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. We'll look at that in a moment to tell him about what was going on with his fiancée. And if anybody needed some insight at this point in history, it was Joseph. And also, the angel came to Mary. Think of James Montgomery's uh, Christmas carol. We just sang it. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story. That's what happened back in Job chapter 38. You see the angels, the morning stars singing about creation. They, specifically Gabriel here, comes to proclaim Messiah's birth. It's very interesting how God uses angels. That's a whole study in and of itself. But in this narrative, he uses the angels and specifically Gabriel to come and make an announcement. A couple of different announcements and a couple of takes on the same announcement. Uh, this, this little baby named John the Baptist was going to be born in miraculous fashion as well to a woman who's beyond the years of bearing children. And then to the shepherds and to Joseph and to Mary about Jesus. What we're going to do this morning is just, just uh, let Luke tell us a story. Uh, this is not really a sermon to take you know, voracious notes on. This is not a, 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 a story that you, you want to find a, a clever outline. This is a story where we just pause and say, wow, what a God, what a Savior. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. This is incredible. As I said, had I been on the committee to say, well, let's send Gabriel to make an announcement, I, I probably wouldn't have gone up to um, uh, the, the, the region of Galilee and certainly not to Nazareth. Nazareth had a bad reputation. It was immoral, unimportant. They had a, an accent they were considered unintelligent. I think it's very interesting that when Gabriel came to earth to announce the Messiah as Savior, that God would be made into flesh, that he passed by Judea, where you would expect him probably to go, where God had made the center of his operations throughout Jewish history in the temple. He came to Galilee, which had been held in contempt for centuries. You go all the way back to Isaiah 9-1, and Galilee was just the lower class. He didn't even come to Jerusalem, which was the city of David, but 
to Nazareth, that specific city, the place where Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He brought his news not to the temple where God had manifest his presence. He had communed with people for centuries. He brought his news into the home of a young engaged woman named Mary. No fanfare, no concert, no fireworks. Simple humility. It's not hard to understand what a surprise it was for the Son of God to come from um, heaven into Nazareth. Again, I, I go back to, to Nathaniel's comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the where. But look at the when. It's really interesting. Not only is this the sixth month of the year, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy according to verse 36, which has just been described by Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, we'll give him his name, uh, the special angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, when you study angels, there are different types of angels. There are even different types of angels physically. You see cherubim and seraphim, some with, with wings and, and, and uh, some with, uh, you look in Revelation chapter four, with eyes all the way around their head with different facial features. This seems to be of the angel sort that just came looking like a human, looking like a man. It's the sixth month. And then we find out specifically some really intriguing facts in verse 27. Notice what, the, what, verse, what the word is, is repeated here. He comes to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. This is Luke telling the story. This is Luke recounting what happened. He wants to make it crystal clear what's going on here in the miraculous nature of Mary's conception. Three observations are made here about, uh, uh, related to Mary. She was engaged. This was a betrothal period that typically was a year. So uh, her parents had probably gotten together with Joseph's parents. It was basically arranged marriages. They were probably between, are you ready for this? 12 and 15 years old. So when you read Mary's Magnificent later in Luke and her theological understanding, her response, she is, by all practical purposes, a junior higher. By the way, if you do the math, so is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were probably right around this age. Don't ever look past this next and younger generation as being and having the potential for significance for God comes to this young engaged woman. Now, we could talk about engagement and what that meant. They, uh, they, were, they were legally identified as being a, a couple, almost being married, but not having consummated. And that would allow them to, to acquire property. That would allow them, as we see uh, later, to register for the census. There were all sorts of, uh, of uh, nuances of that that was official on the books, but not official in terms of them living together. She was engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. This is so intentional. Luke says there was a man and he had a name. 
He's to be remembered. He's to be thought of. And then we find out this out about Joseph, which is exactly what we find out in Matthew chapter 1. He was a descendant of David. That's very significant, as we'll see in a moment, because this, this heir that Mary was going to have had to be a descendant of David to be the Messiah. He had the blood of David flowing through his veins. By the way, as did Mary herself, as we'll see in a moment. And it was noted twice in here, the verse begins and the verse ends with the fact that she was a virgin. She was pure. Mary herself will make note of that fact with that same word in verse 34. So Luke wants us to know, he almost grabs us by the collar. You do understand what's happening here. This angel comes to this young woman who was engaged, but holy and above reproach and pure, had never been with a man named Mary. Verse 28, and coming in, stop right there. Um, I've seen different movies and depictions of this, this angel coming to Mary and oftentimes it's outside with all sorts of light. This literally means came in the, in the house. So she's in some house, whether it's her house or another's house, we don't know, but she's obviously alone. You would think that if anyone was with her, they would have had questions as well. So she's alone in a house and the angel comes in, indicates that there's a door open and it walks in. This, this angel, he walks in. And he said to her, by the way, angels are always depicted in the masculine, he. He said to her, greetings, what's up? How you doing? Now there are several things that are implied in this text. She knew somehow this was an angel. Now we find out from, from Mark and from uh, Matthew that when angels are seen, they typically have white clothes. In fact, it says that they're, they're, they're whiter than any launderer could make them. And that's because there was no bleach in the first uh, uh, century. And so you could make things white, which is basically a, 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 a close to a burlap. And you could try to, to wash and wash and wash to get it as faded as possible where it would resemble something white. But when these angels showed up, they had white. They had bleached clothes. It was bright. There was something identifiable about Gabriel where she knew this was not one of my neighbors. It's not one of my relatives. This is obviously an angel sent from God. Coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord with you. The Lord is with you. Literally, grace to the one to whom grace has been endued. The, the greeting of, the, when it says greetings there, it literally means grace, grace to you. And I don't really like the translation of favored one. Literally, grace to the one who has grace. Grace to the one who's in, endued and imbibed with grace. It speaks of God's grace working in her as well as her fellowship and love for God. This is a term that lets us know she was a godly woman in fellowship with her Lord. And then it says the term Lord. Lord was an indicator that this was Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of her ancestors and the God of the Older Testament. The God who you know is with you. This would have been an encouragement and a surprise at the same time. It indicates that Mary was inside a house and an angel walks in to visit her. Verse 29. But she was very perplexed. Stop right there. You think? An angel walks in in clothes that you haven't seen and he says, greetings, God is with you. She is perplexed. What I find very dramatic though 
is not that she was perplexed that an angel came to see her, as was Zechariah. She was perplexed, look at the verse, at the statement. She was curious, perplexed, concerned, as we'll find in the next verse, afraid, fearful, overwhelmed by what the angel had said. The Lord is with you. The Lord has given you favor. The Lord has noticed you. Just speaks of an incredible amount of humility. And she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. That's, that's our way of saying, she kept saying, what in the world is going on? What is he saying? What does this mean? An angel just showed up and said, God is with me. And you can almost sense Gabriel saying, well, if you're surprised at that, you better buckle up because I got something else to tell you as well. Such a statement of her humility. She did not know she was endued with grace, not even conscious of her beauty of character. The Greek word here is perplexed. She was disturbed, confused, afraid, frightened. We find out something else that was going on in her heart by the angel's response. Verse 30, the angel says, do not be afraid. Well, hang on. She hadn't said she was afraid. Well, I think Gabriel had a really good understanding of fear. He had shown up to people before and he knew the response. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. Mary, he knows her name. No doubt she had never had a conversation with this person. Do not be afraid, Mary, very clearly identifying her. For you have found grace with God, favor with God. She was afraid. And Gabriel knew it. And you and I would be as well. When John sees angels, the apostle John, in Revelation 1, he falls down as a dead man. It was a common occurrence when people see angels in the Bibles. They were, well, I love the old King James about the shepherds. They saw the angels and they were sore afraid. It's a great description. God's messenger comes bringing the information of grace, not judgment. When an angel shows up, she had a holy fear of God. She would expect this, this, this is probably not good news. And he says, no, no, this is great news. I'm bringing you grace. You have found favor, grace with God, not judgment. Verse 31, I've told you over and over, when you see the word behold in the Bible, it's like saying, guess what? <laughs> Gabriel says, and guess what? Behold. Now just put yourself in, in her little room for a minute. You've been pure, you've been holy, you've been above reproach, you dwell with God, you worship God, you love God, you've been acknowledged by the angel as someone who's close to God. And then you find out you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. This is what I find very remarkable about Mary's understanding of what was going on. It, it's plausible by reading that that she could have interpreted that as, well, you know, Joseph and I someday are gonna, gonna get married and we'll have relations and we'll have a baby. And, and this is so nice to have a little fore, fore, um, uh, being foretold that it's gonna be a boy. And how nice. That's not what she was thinking. She understood exactly what the angel was saying. Twice already, Luke has made reference to the fact that Mary was a virgin. 
Now she's told she's going to get pregnant and she would have a son. Just a little fun footnote about that. There were no sonograms or ultrasounds during that day. No one knew the gender of their baby before they were born. Now, uh, if you're, you know, probably 40 or 50 or above, you probably didn't know the gender of your baby when, 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 uh, when he or she was born. This is a relatively new thing. It's, it's uh, like opening your Christmas gifts early. You shouldn't do, anyway, um, nothing wrong with that. But imagine that this is a double whammy. You're gonna have a baby and it's gonna be a boy. I mean, it's very specific. Turn for a moment back over to, uh, well, I want to connect his name to this. Back over to Matthew chapter uh, 1. Matthew chapter 1. This is, uh, we have to connect these two narratives together. Maybe next year we'll look at the, the angel's announcement to Joseph. Poor Joseph. Joseph didn't have the privilege of an angelic visit before he found out that Mary was pregnant. Remember that. He finds out she's pregnant. And, and imagine this. Imagine that you're, um, you're Joseph. Imagine you're, you're you, men, and you're engaged and you've been holy and pure and you're sure that your, your fiance has been and she comes up and she says, I need to tell you something. Okay, what's that? I'm pregnant. How many places can your mind go? And how would it land if you, if then she said, and an angel told me that God made me pregnant. Right. Verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been engaged, betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So important how Matthew says that before they had came together, highlighting her virginity. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. We'll come to that in a moment. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. What a, what an, what a godly man. Decided, planned to send her away secretly. He did something noble even before he knew what was going on. But when he had considered this, guess what? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This was a good night for Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's what Mary had said. She's telling you the truth. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Does that sound familiar to what the angel Gabriel had told Mary? For he, this is, this is what the angel tells Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they will call his name God with us, Emmanuel. And he gives the translation. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name, Jesus. Obviously, echoing back to Isaiah seven fourteen. So you're, how, how do you process this? How do you interpret this? Do you believe this? 
Mary believed it. Now we find out in verse 32 the heart of this passage. Because this is really not so much about Mary or Joseph. It's about the child. He will be great, verse 32 says. He will be great. You are about to give birth in just a few months to a great man. One who would have massive, exponential impact. And he will be called, now this is interesting, the son of the most high, and he'll have the, his father's throne, and there's a description given to him about his Ju- Judaistic um, uh, uh, messianic hope. But you would expect the angel to say, he will be called the son of Joseph. That's how you typically, look at all the disciples. They're always given their, their father's name. He's the son of, and he's given the name. He will be called the son of the most high. Not just God, God here. This is the most high God. This is a reverential term attributed to God. And the Lord God, this is another compound. The Lord God, Yahweh the creator, will give him the throne of his father, David. Now we find out that he has a father who's not only God, but he has a father who's David. He is in the, in the line of David. This is the messianic hope of which David foretold. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is... Uh, One of the many reasons that I believe that one day the Messiah will come back to earth and have a physical, literal rule over the nation of Israel. When they will look at the one that they have pierced and they will repent and they will receive him as their Messiah because he will reign over the house of Jacob. He will be the Jewish Messiah. How long? What does it say? Forever. And then she finds out something about how his greatness and his kingdom will have no end. It was very common in, in their understanding of history and they're looking around at the, the tetrarchs and the governors who would come and go that every kingdom, every ruler came to his end. Sometimes by a term limit, sometimes by a death, sometimes by being overthrown. This little child, the one that you're going to become pregnant with, will be the Messiah in the line of David. He will be the son of God and he will also have a kingdom that will not end and Israel will have her hope. This is the real focus of the narrative for Luke. It's the identity of the child. It's answering the question that we've asked. What child is this? We find out from Matthew when the dream happened with Joseph that God is salvation. He will come to save his people. And this, this uh, name Jesus is really the, um, the, the Greek way of saying the Hebrew word Yeshua, Joshua. It means God is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. So I'm thinking that there was a big sigh and a deep breath taken between verses 32 and 33 and verse 34. Mary said to the angel, "Um, not sure if you're aware of this, but how can I have a baby? I'm still a virgin since I have not been with a man. Before Mary can wrap her mind around who this son would be, she had to wrap her mind around that the son would be. She knew well the facts of life. She articulates them here. She understood biology. 
and she knew it was impossible for her to be pregnant. I love this because of her moral purity. This is such a clear statement that she had been above reproach. How can this be? I've never been with a man. This is not possible, Gabriel. Her question was asked not out of, out of um, disbelief or doubt. Zechariah's was. You go back in the previous passage and you know, he, he doubted and God, remember what God did to him? He says, you can't talk until the baby's born, until John's born. Hers was not asked out of disbelief or doubt, but out of curiosity and wonder. Deep curiosity. Gabriel, you're gonna have to give me more information. How am I going to conceive a child? Now, as we approach verse 35, I I just wanna give you a little peek behind God's providential curtain if I can. It's important for us to marvel in this mystery, but not to solve it. It's important for us to, to worship because of this mystery, but not to doubt it. If God had wanted us to know more about the fertilization processes in Mary's body, he could have been very descriptive. He invented this whole thing. He decides not to tell us. But he does tell Mary something that all of us have been curiously um, inquisitive about, but there's not a real answer. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, he provides an answer. He says, I understand, Mary. I would want to know too if I were you. So he says, the power, excuse me, the Holy Spirit will come to you. Now, by definition, the Holy Spirit is not perceivable with the senses. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And more, more descriptive. And the power of the Most High, who we just understood would be the father of the child, will overshadow you. Literally, it will put you in the darkness of a shadow. And the point is, when you're in shadow lands, when you're in the darkness, you can't see what's going on. That's another way of him saying, you're not going to really know And without giving us any further explanation, he says, and for that reason, the holy child, look at that description, the the most high, the holy one, the Holy Spirit, the holy child, shall be called the son of God. He's already been called the son of David. He's already been called the son of David. He's been called the, the son of the most high. Now he's called the son of God. This is no slap in the face of Joseph. This is a prediction of his identity. Holy Spirit will come. The power of the Most High will overshadow. The child will be called holy as God's son. There are so many trees that have been sacrificed on the, the altar of writing books about what this means. All the way down to, well, if Jesus did not have Joseph's DNA, but he had Mary's DNA, and, and man is sinful, then he would have been, have, have been sinful, and that's not what, it, he doesn't even get into that. He says, fully God, fully man. Don't try to figure it out. Then he jumps, of course, he kind of goes back. He says, and behold, even your relative, most speculate her aunt, Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age and she 
who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. This is Elizabeth, who had not had children. She's made it uh, all the way into the, the years where it was not expected that you could bear a child. And now she becomes pregnant with little John the Baptist. Here's what's interesting. Look at the fact that Elizabeth was related to Mary. Remember, Elizabeth, Mary is going to take a respite uh, after this narrative. And she's going to go down and spend time with Elizabeth. And John the Baptist would have a response to that when Mary came, right? He would leap in his mother's womb. There's so much here packed into verse 36 since the genealogy in chapter three, verse um, 23 to 28 is different than the one in Matthew. We say, well, this, how can that be? How can the Matthew genealogy be different than the Luke genealogy? Seems best to regard the one in Luke here as Mary's genealogy. Yet, this indicates that she's a direct descendant of David. It indicates she's a direct descendant of David, yet Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. We know that uh, from, from verse five. So Mary must have been related to Elizabeth through her mother, who would have been of Aaronic descent. So consequently, Mary was a descendant of David through her father. Both Mary and Joseph were descendants, as the prophecy said, of David. Notice also, this will make Jesus and John the Baptist cousins. John, when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, that wasn't the first time. He knew Jesus. It was his cousin. He had grown up knowing Jesus. I love, look down at chapter um, uh, 1 verse 66. I love this question about John the Baptist. Fear came on all those living around them and all the matters that were being talked about in the hill country of Judea, verse 65, verse 66. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child, John the Baptist, turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. If they thought that there were questions to be asked about John, wait till they met his cousin. Then verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Why does he say that? Why does he say that? Because Mary would have said, Gabriel, this is not possible. So before she can even ask it, make the statement, Gabriel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave, literally the slave of the Lord. Behold, I, will, I am under ownership of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Wow. Wow. And the angel left. Do you understand when Mary said, may it be done to me, what that it was? She was in an extremely embarrassing and difficult position. Engaged to Joseph she was about to face the stigma of being pregnant without being fully wed. For the rest of her life, Mary was accused of immorality. Jesus was accused of being what we commonly call Ill illegitimate. Listen to two verses in Jesus' interaction. In John 8, 41, Jesus is, uh, um, well, the, his enemies were saying, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Hear what they're saying? You're, you're, you're trying to get onto us? We weren't born of fornication, implied like you were. 
Mark 6, 3. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? There's no mention of Joseph. The son of Mary and brother of James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Are these not his sister, are, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. No mention of Joseph. No one was known as the son of their mother. Jesus was. Why? Because none of them recognized that Joseph was his father. They were, they were right in that conclusion. This event, understand, I think when Mary says, let it be done to me, she knew exactly what was going to happen in the months and years and decades to follow. To follow the Lord was going to actually be her moral downfall with her reputation. It's a supernatural biblical interpretation of the Christmas child. Not mythology, not legend. It's a narrative to be taken literally, historically, and at face value. And we should expect that if the creator God entered into humanity, that it would be surrounded by supernatural phenomenon. What child is this? My question is, can you answer it according to verses 32 and 33? The Messiah, son of the most high, the one who will rule forever over his people, the Jews. It's really the holiday in the spring that gives the holiday in the winter meaning. Well, I think we say it almost every year. Christmas without Easter is just a sad story of, of a baby being bored and humble, born in humble estate. Easter without Christmas is the sad story of a man who died on a cross. When we understand who this baby was and how this baby grew up to live, and what this young man would end up at about 30, 33 years old doing for the sins of those who would believe and that he would rise from the grave. It's an absolute disconnect to leave Christmas out of Easter and Easter out of Christmas. What child is this? The angel told us he's the Messiah and the Savior, what he told Joseph, the Savior of all who need salvation. Let's pray together. Our prayer room will be open to my right and as we dismiss, if you have any questions, we'd love to talk to you, pray with you. But don't, don't miss the opportunity in this season to, to be lost in wonder, amazement, to be curious to be overwhelmed at the reality of God being born as a man. Seems almost too fantastic to say. Father, give us fresh awarenesses. Of the miraculous nature of your son and those miraculous events that superintended his entrance into this world. Give us fresh awarenesses that the one that 
Mary held in her arms would one day save her from her sins and offer salvation to all who would believe. Give us fresh awarenesses of our security or lack of security in your son. In the coming week, help our celebrations to be full of worship, not just festivities. For your glory we pray, amen.